Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right. Welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Hagopian. And we have a fantastic mystery guest for you today. We have Spike Cohen in the house. And Spike is a good friend of the show. And thank you, Spike, for coming. Want to introduce yourself quick? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, Kevin and, and uh, Todd, for having me on. Folks, my name is Spike Cohen. Uh, and I was the uh, I am the retired vice presidential nominee uh, vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in this uh, last election that we had last month. And uh, I am indeed a true friend of the show and of both uh, Todd and Kevin. And I am honored to be on. Thank you so much, Spike. We really appreciate it. And uh, coming on a lot earlier than we thought with this chief chef uh, that we launched just about six weeks ago. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, we always like to get started with um, the path to liberty and how you came on to liberty, but but since you're such a um, a big force in the movement, and I don't think a lot of people know your whole story, could you just kind of run through your resume and then also your path to liberty and what got you to where you are today uh, and who you are, Spike? Sure, absolutely. So, um you know, my background wasn't really in politics. My background was more in business, which is why it sort of appears that I came out of nowhere. Um, I have been uh, owning and st starting and operating and owning uh, and, and, and selling small businesses for uh, over 20 years now. And that's where my, that's where all of my, uh, you know, all of my focus was in, was in, is in, in being involved in businesses that I started. Uh, my first business that I started was, uh, when I was 16 years old, I started a web design company and, uh, and I continued on from there. Um, my focus changed, uh, very suddenly from, uh, just trying to focus on making money through business to what my real passion is, which is spreading the word of liberty. Um, when I was diagnosed with MS uh, in 2016, after two years of uh, really just waiting for that chip to th that shoe to drop and to get the official diagnosis, uh, I was diagnosed with MS. Uh, and then the, what the real the, the thing that really threw me for a loop was when they were discussing my treatment options. They told me that the goal of treatment uh, for my MS was to slow the rate of progression of the MS so that it wasn't much different than just the, you know, the normal process of aging. And for most people, that would be comforting. Uh, that was horrifying to me because I realized in that moment, MS, no MS, you know, just our standard, our, our, the standard issue of living is that we over time decline until we eventually aren't here anymore. And suddenly, my last 20 years uh, being spent on, you know, solely on just focusing on making money, suddenly felt somewhat misplaced. Um, and so I was at a point uh, at that point where I didn't have to be focusing on working and making money anymore. And so basically, I, I retired. And I started focusing full time on my real passion, spreading the message of, of liberty to a public that often has not heard our ideas or has had a really bad take on our ideas. And so to that end, uh, about three years ago, I, uh, I started my show, uh, My Fellow Americans, and uh, I became the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media. And then I became the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom. Uh, I got more involved in libertarian activism online. And, uh, and in doing that and in interacting and talking with uh, uh, Americans 
across the country. Uh, because the way that we do our shows is we don't market to libertarians. We market it as a, you know, uh, an entertainment and, 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 and entertainment and politics, as opposed to, you know, this is for libertarians by, by libertarians. And the, and the purpose of that is to bring people into the movement. And in, in talking to so many people who had never heard of our ideas before and said, wow, I only thought there were, you know, Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, I didn't realize that there was an actual different way of looking at things and a different viable choice between conservative or liberal. Um, I realized that the, the, the Libertarian Party needed spokespeople and candidates who were able to present the message in a way that wasn't just principled, but also engaging and dynamic and, and, and you know, something that everyday people could connect with. Uh, and to that end, I ran for the VP nomination. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I, I ultimately I got hired by the delegates to do it. And um, going back to what brought me to liberty, I actually used to be a neocon. Uh, after 9-11, I, I, I fully bought into the, the media and government narrative that we were attacked by the terrorists because they hated us for our freedoms. And the only way we could ever truly be safe was to spread peace and democracy through the world through bombs and destabilization and drone attacks. It, it sounds stupid saying it now, but I, I wholeheartedly believed it. Uh, and then there were some incredibly annoying people like uh, Ron Paul and Matt Kibbe and and other uh, you know libertarians who uh, who you know talked in conservative circles, uh, who would say that no, if you want a smaller government, uh, you're not going to get it from you know creating a worldwide empire. If if you want a government that leaves you alone, you're not going to get it through you know uh, surveillance without uh, without a warrant. You know a, a constant surveillance state. You're you're not going to get what you want by having an all powerful government infringing upon your rights at every step and and robbing you to pay for you know, a, a campaign of, of mass murder and mass control here and around the globe. And so uh, that coupled with as my businesses grew and as I became, uh, you know, more successful, seeing how every with each bit of success that I had, the government got more and more involved to the point of where it felt punitive at times, the way that they were taxing and regulating me. But then also seeing how, you know, my my much larger crony competition often didn't have to face any of the same kind of competition or same type of, of uh, you know, uh, burden that I was. They were paying taxes, but they also, you know, had a, had a, a regulatory structure that was favorable to them. Uh, it, it made me realize that, yeah, wow, these people are, are correct. It's not just that taxes are bad. It's that government involvement in our lives and our rights and our property is bad. And whatever pretext they use uh, to take that additional control that they keep taking, that's just the lies that they tell us to justify what they're doing. And so that really kind of set me on the path from being more of a neocon to being a conservative, to being a constitutionalist, to eventually reaching my final form, as it were, as a, as a libertarian. That's pretty awesome. It's a fascinating story. And two things pop out of me there. So first, I'm not sure if you're aware, but part of the uh, charm of this show is that I am a former neocon, a uh, very similar story to you mm -hmm. yep. uh, from a 2001 perspective, uh, even, even almost went into the war. Um, and Kevin is former communist. And so we come from the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. In wow, really? Yeah. I did that? I did not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually started a young communist on campus group at my college wow. and was very, a very ultra progressive, like 2007, 2008. 
Um, I, I didn't support President Obama because I thought that he was too conservative. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, the second cool part about that is Kevin, uh, when he was much younger, started a business, was very successful, sold it. Um, myself. Later. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, go ahead. And that's, it's funny. Cause when I'm hearing similar things from you, so I was super, super liberal, super progressive, yeah. super socialist. And, um, I kind of stumbled my way into starting a business that became successful. And through that is what led me to being more economically conservative, but I was still very very socially liberal right right and, right and, and so that's what kind of led me to libertarianism yeah when you start a business from scratch suddenly uh you know the labor theory of value doesn't sound very good anymore <laughs> no no it doesn't well and then <laughs> what what really got me was um my first interaction with like lazy people and mm -hmm. and people that and it like having having employees that were just not good employees and like having this internal struggle of like well, you know, to each, each to their ability, each to their yep, need. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, and it was, and it was just not working out. So I had that kind of internal struggle, but yeah. I, I all, I am pushing this really hard. I think that what leads a lot of younger people into progressivism is if you look at cultural Marxism, especially from like the Frederick school of thought, that was their idea. They wanted to attach to social and civil issues because they knew that people felt more strongly about that than economics. Yep. And then once you get involved in it, then you see like, okay, well, these people that support this, I align with them on these social issues and they're socialist and or communist. So I guess I am too. And so you, they kind of suck you in with that. And it's, I think their, that we, it's, it's their foot in the door of, well, if you agree with us on these social issues, here's our economic theory as to why we believe this. And, and this yeah. really, I mean, this isn't specific to them. And any good uh, ideological uh, growth strategy is based on meeting people on what you agree with them on and then taking them on the journey for why they should agree with you on everything else. They ju they've just perfected it in a, in a, in a, a way that has really been able to, to connect, especially with younger people. Wait, yeah. Wait. And that so Spike, are you saying that when somebody has one difference of opinion out of 27, we should not attack them and call them not a true libertarian? Is that what you're trying to say? No, no, no. We should definitely call them bootlickers and alienate them and make it almost <laughs> assure that they end up uh, not just remaining uh, in whatever other party or movement they are that is opposite of ours, but end up actively hating us exactly. and not wanting to, uh, you know, and actually starting to question whether they even agree with us on the things they agree with us on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's definitely come back to that after we talk about the election, because <laughs> that is a huge hot button uh, that we try and talk about here. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm glad that came up early, but let's come back to that. But uh, absolutely. But yeah, I think uh, the interesting thing now, I own a business. Um, and so now we've, we're sitting here together. We've got three business owners uh, or former business owners and um, successful people who have come to Liberty uh, recently in different ways. What do you think is driving um, more people of different backgrounds to come to the Libertarian Party over the last four or five years? I think that you have had this kind of steady stream of people that it, it's, a, it's a few things. I think the biggest one is the pattern spotters. Once you spot the pattern of the, the Republican Democrat 
or I call it the Republicrat rope-a-dope or the good cop, bad cop routine, that both sides play good cop to their voting base and more importantly, play bad cop to the other side's voting base, which is, which is how they ensure that the vast majority of voters, even if they don't like either option they have, decide that they have to vote for the lesser evil because they often, and we just saw this with Biden, these people weren't voting for Biden. They were voting against Donald Trump. And a lot of the people that voted for Trump weren't voting for Trump. They were voting against Biden or against, quote unquote, the left. And it's what gets people sucked into it. And a lot of people take a step back and realize they see the pattern. Oh, it doesn't matter which side wins. They all work together anyway. This is all theater. So we get those people just naturally that come through. I think the other thing is as government becomes increasingly repressive to people, to everyday Americans, as government becomes increasingly expensive and increasingly corrupt and increasingly bloated and increasingly inefficient and all of the things that come with greater and greater central planning, uh, central government planning of every aspect of our lives, more and more people realize that something has to give. A lot of people come to the libertarian movement without really fully being libertarians. They're just sick of this one thing happening to them. We get a lot of people that come to the libertarian movement because they've been harassed by uh, you know, by, by police over victimless crimes or because, you know, their city government has tried to destroy their business over some ridiculous, you know, bylaw or because more, more than likely uh, a competitor of theirs has friends in government and they don't, you know, they come in on that and they may still not agree with us on things like foreign policy. They, they may not agree with us on things like immigration. They may not agree with us on things like healthcare, but they understand that something's wrong and that we're the only ones speaking to it. And there are other people that come in because we get a ton of, uh, uh, um, active duty and veterans, uh, military personnel that come in because of, uh, you know, opposition to the wars and seeing what's really happening behind the scenes. And again, they come here and may not agree with us on a lot of our stuff, but they recognize that something is wrong here. So, you know, people come in often because either they spotted the pattern or because they're so acutely harmed and affected by government that eventually they just get sick of it and say, fine, I'll go join someone that's going to you know, dismantle all of this stuff. And it's incumbent upon us when they come here to welcome them, but then also to engage with them and, and kind of uh, allow the greater libertarian culture to, to influence them in an in a, in a engaging and organic way to be able to pull them over into full libertarianism where they don't just agree with us on that one issue, but they, they, they agree with us on the whole, the whole slate of things that we want to do. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I remember um, when Ron Paul ran and when Justin Amash was in the process of being elected in Michigan, I lived out that way. Um, and, I, and their fiscal policies was what caught my eye. Yep. I was neocon at the time. And I started listening to Justin Amash afterwards. I, I wasn't a big Ron Paul fan, other than the fact that I like to listen to him at the debates, you know what I mean? Um, but I started listening to Amash afterwards and watching him and slowly started to evaluate the different issues where I disagreed with him on, you know, and started diving into it. And then as the kind of core GOP, when, when after Amash and Massey and all these I remember specifically writing an article that got published that was something along the lines of, I'm a former neocon turned wacko bird, because at the time, I think McCain had called them. Yeah, the wacko birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it was all about that kind of evolution where issue by issue, I started looking at it and true small government, you know, would 
would move you towards what these guys were arguing and exactly. not the board GOP was arguing. And that was my evolution. It was really slow. It wasn't kind of this band moment that everyone talks about. But um, but again, I, I honestly, if I had come to Twitter when I was at the beginning of that evolution and got barbecued, you know, I'm not sure that I would have made that evolution the way I did. That well, and that's the that's the issue. And by the way, my evolution was kind of uh, you know, I told the the you know rapid version of that story, but my evolution was kind of gradual. It was over a few years that I went from being a neocon to more of a paleocon constitutionalist type to a minarchist to being you know an ANCAP uh, a libertarian. It, it was sort of in phases. Uh, there was a bit of a conservatarian phase in there. There was a, well, we have to change the Republican Party to be the party of liberty, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there were many different steps in there. Um, but, but you know, I, I, I also agree. I think that we don't do well. You know, I, I'm the what is now the the Joe Jorgensen Spike Cohen Facebook group, which is currently in the process of being rebranded to being a libertarian activist uh, Facebook group. It's the largest libertarian Facebook group. It's got almost 100,000 members, most of whom, the vast majority of whom are not fully libertarian. And they have a lot of different questions and, and a lot of different, you know, uh, ideas and a lot of different, well, you know, well, what if we did this or what if we did that? And they're not very libertarian things. And what happens is they'll come in bright eyed and bushy tailed and go, Hey folks, I, you know, I'm real excited about this. Let's go grow this party. By the way, you know, we're a really rich country. Why, why can't we give healthcare to everyone? Right. And, and, you know, we obviously need to engage them and explain why that's a bad idea. But often when I see the people who answer, and, it, and they go, why don't you just go back to the Democrats? It's like, oh, okay, this is, they will. That's what they will do. And you don't have to push away everyone that doesn't instantly agree with you. And I actually use a, a series of, of filters that I encourage people to use, especially when they're arguing on the internet, but even in person, when you're engaging people politically um, to try to help you to remember, you know, uh, how to talk nicely to people. Um, and the, the three filters I use are, the first one is pretend that you are talking to a loved one who just disagrees with you. Like you're pretend you're talking to Meemaw uh, and you love her very much uh, or someone in your life who you love very much, but they just disagree with you on this subject. You know, don't you're, you're more than likely not going to like call them names and call them a bootlicker and tell them to GTFO and all that stuff. You know, how would you talk to them? The next thing is pretend that whenever you're talking to someone, especially on the internet, especially on social media, pretend that every single person, you know, and a bunch of, and, and thousands of strangers you'll never meet uh, are seeing everything that you're typing because they are, uh, but pretend that they're in front of you while you're saying or typing this. Does that change how you would say stuff? And then the last one, and I find it to be the most powerful one for a lot of people is remember what you were like when you came to this movement and all the questions you had, because most people did not start as libertarians. How would you have liked someone to talk to you? How did you have people talk to you? And how nice would it be to have someone talk to you in a way that actually connected and, 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 you know, empathized with your concerns and then took you on the journey for why libertarianism actually works. If our, if we're better than the left on the things the left cares about, and we're better than the right on the things the right cares about, and for that matter, we're better than centrists on the things they care about, why the hell are we arguing with them? Why wouldn't we just listen to their valid concerns and then take them on the journey for how libertarian ideas work better and, and address what their questions are. And if we aren't in a position to do that, maybe we should let someone else do it instead of just yelling at them. Yeah, yeah no, it's a great point. I mean, 
I think it's something that we as a as a group need to talk about a lot more often. We've heard a lot of feedback on this show um, that obviously libertarians tend to be too aggressive uh, towards newbies, you know, right off the bat. Um, there's something to be said for, and I think um, you and I actually met uh, when I was doing a debate on muddied waters. I think. Yeah, yeah. The um, we first met uh, when you were doing when you were considering running for chair, and you did a debate with uh, Joshua Smith and uh, Mike Shipley. And at the it, time, one of the things I was talking about was the eighty twenty rule and having yep. just two or three of the core elements of libertarianism, and having that be kind of the hook to get yep. people in. Um, and obviously, got barbecued on that as well, even by libertarians. <laughs> I, but, um, something though, because, because I had, we had the people messaging us, you know, to the page. And even though you were the least well-known among the people that were in that debate, you had a lot of, you got a lot of, 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 of newfound respect from a lot of people who were like, I don't know who this Todd guy is, but he was making some good points. One of the issues that we have is that, and this is true of, of movements and, and groups in general, um, the people who are that minority who, who are, you know, that don't want to get along, they just want to push people away. They're often, unfortunately, the loudest. And so they often create the appearance that that is what the movement is about. Because, you know, in that, in that debate, you could have 20 or 30 commenters who are just the loudest and create the appearance that this is what libertarians are like. Right. I will say that we tend to have a lot a larger proportion of people that will get very argumentative very quickly. And my, my theory for that is that, and, and I, and I, I, I came to this theory because I in the past have been one of these argumentarians uh, who wants to, you know, just like call everyone a, a bootlicker. And I had to examine like, well, where did that come from? Why was I doing that? I knew it didn't work because in my, in my line of work where 80% of what I did was just sales and marketing, I knew that that didn't work. So why did I do it when it came to this? And what I came to the conclusion for me was that when you are a libertarian, you exist in a world of people who overwhelmingly think that government should be controlling most or all aspects of our lives to some degree or another. And it is slowly getting worse over time. And at a time when we're hoping, you know, we, we almost kind of revert into this semi-fantasy world of, well, imagine if we didn't have a Federal Reserve and imagine if, if you know, free market currency was, was you know, the way that we, we had, that we used currency and imagine if we didn't have the wars and, the, and the, you know, the, the, all the people that are in cages for victimless crimes were freed and, you know, all these terrible regulations that are killing jobs were gone. You know, we, we live in that world and then, we, and then we exist in a world where it's just getting worse and the vast majority of people around us are loudly cheering for it and it makes us somewhat misanthropic it makes us somewhat kind of resentful of other people and so you see a, a kind of standard issue i hate people uh thought process among a lot of libertarians and it, it's it comes out of it again empathizing with someone where they are it is understandable why often they feel that way but if we are to try to have any effect as a political party which the purpose of a political party is to contest and win elections. And the purpose of a political movement is to move the needle of, of the, both the cultural conversation and the political reality to what it is that we want. 
If we are choosing not to just go and be hermits living in a cave somewhere and hating everyone, if we are trying to actually interact with the public and try to move the needle our way, both culturally and politically, we have to engage people. And that means in our reality, that means that the 98% of the people we're interacting with have most or all of the things that they think are in total or at least partial disagreement with what we think. And we have to remember that they also have valid concerns and that they've been conditioned to think that statism is the way. That's why they're going in that direction, because they often haven't even heard our ideas or they've heard a really garbage take about our ideas, usually from our opponents. And it is incumbent upon us to reach them where they are, empathize to whatever extent we can on their valid concerns, maybe find common ground things that we also are concerned about that they're talking about. And then once we demonstrate that they, that we care and are concerned with what they're concerned about, then we can take them on that journey. There's an old marketing phrase that uh, no one cares what you know until they know that you care. And this is a perfect example of how to do it. And, and as I said before, if you are someone that is either not predisposed to wanting to talk to people that, you know, are going to ask a bunch of status questions, or you don't readily have available the answers, you don't have to engage these folks. You can let someone else who, who has the, who has both the, the willingness and, and the, and the, you know, the toolkit available to be able to do it. You can, you, it, it's okay to not, uh, you know, if, if the alternative to, you know, not engaging is to call them a bootlicker because you just don't have the time or patience for it. Just don't, just don't let someone else talk to them. I'm sure you're not suggesting that on occasion it's okay to just shut up online. Oh, I would never say that there are times when we should hold our, our tongue on social media. No, of course not. No, we should absolutely, we should absolutely, I'm sorry. If, if anything that I said sounded like I was saying that there are times when you don't have to uh, tell a stranger how wrong and stupid they are. If I ever gave that impression that that's what I'm saying, I, I want to wholeheartedly apologize now. <laughs> well, on the topic of elections, I think that's what a lot of people want to hear about. So if you want to take us through a couple of things here, first of all, um, I'm sure, you know, a hundred, a hundred people have thought about running for office and what was it like to actually be on the ticket? It was the most exhilarating and challenging and fun and uh, 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 sometimes incredibly frustrating, but uh, rewarding things I have ever done in my life. Um, and it was, it's weird because when I first, you know, ran for uh, uh, the nomination, because for those who don't know, uh, our presidential nominee doesn't pick the vice presidential nominee. Our delegates actually choose them separately. So I actually won an election by the party. So I was actually running a separate campaign for vice president. And when I went into it, as I've always done when I did in business as well, whenever I go into a major undertaking that I've never done before, I begin the process of visualizing what it would be like if I were successful. So that if I actually get it, um, I have a, at least a concept of what it should look like. And so I, I looked a lot at, you know, what other VP candidates had to do. I, you know, and, and not just libertarian candidates, but, you know, Republican and Democrat candidates, you know, what does that look like? What are, what does your role consist of? So I had a decent visualization of what it was going to look like. And it was actually, it was pretty true to form once from, in terms of what, uh, uh, in terms of what, uh, what it actually ended up looking like, but it's completely different 
the difference between visualizing something and actually experiencing it, actually getting off of a tour bus and having hundreds of people you've never met chant your name. You know, it's, it is a, it is a, a surreal experience. Uh, and, and, and more importantly, the connections I was able to make uh, with everyday Americans across the country, people who uh, had never heard our ideas and, and, and just came out because they saw a, a flyer or something online about a, a VP candidate and they came out to hear more and ended up joining the party, talking to people who have been activists for many years, but just felt like we weren't, our ideas weren't going anywhere. We weren't ever going to win and, and being able to excite them with the idea that we actually can win and, and, and can affect the, you know, the, the outcome for things. Um, being able to do that and being able to hear the stories of people who you know, were brought to libertarianism because of various excesses and abuses that have happened at the hands of government. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it, it, it's amazing. I, I traveled to 35 states, had something like 75 campaign stops and interacted uh, personally with tens of thousands of people. And it is, uh, it was, it was, uh, my body is still adjusting to waking up every day in the same place multiple times a week. It's, it, 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 is, it was definitely quite the experience. I, I, I certainly, I'd highly recommend it to anyone who wants to try it. And I mean, it was, uh, to your point, there were people, you know, everyone kind of thinks, okay, 100, 300 people show up, it must just be the libertarians, but it's not true. There were people no. that were showing up because they heard the candidate was in town. I went to the Oklahoma City rally with Joe and sat next to, or stood next to this guy who came real late he was a Tom Woods listener and just happened to be driving home from work, heard the libertarian candidate was in town, you know, swung over. And we talked just off to the side the whole time and uh, ended up volunteering for you guys, you know, put in his name and email and took a sign. And nice. And it was just really interesting hearing him. You know, I mean, he was clearly a conservative who had libertarian ideas and was, you know, listening to libertarian type mm -hmm. talk shows, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. But, um, but it was just really interesting. I mean, he came, he came for no other reason than somebody important was coming and he wanted to see what they had to say. In some cases, at least as much as half of the pe of the crowd that showed up were people that just were curious what I was doing there, who I was, what I had to say. And so we, and for that reason, we tailored our events where we would have the down ballot candidates in that area talk first, uh, and any local libertarian activists talk first. They would introduce me. I'd give a very short, like five to seven minute long speech, and then I'd immediately go to Q and A and do like an hour of Q and A with the idea that we tried to get as many of the non libertarians to be able to ask their questions first. And we encourage the other people in the audience to not boo them when they would ask questions like, well, you know, if you get elected, what are you going to give us for education? What are you going to give us for this? Because again, they're conditioned to ask it that way. They get robbed at every stand at every step and they're told, oh, it's okay. Government's going to give you stuff if you need it. So, you know, the answer to that question isn't nothing. I'm not going to give you a thing. You're not owed anything. The answer is you talk about the fact that they've been robbed and that the people that have taken their money are using it in wasteful and terrible ways because they don't care about them. And that the best thing possible would be to give them their own money back and to present that in a way that connects with them. But anyway, the way that we did our events, uh, as often as possible, because they had to be outside because of COVID, no one was going to let us do inside events with hundreds of people. Um, the way we would do it, because it had to be outside, I said, okay, well, if it's going to be outside, let's make it like a, a you know, like a, a, a party or block party type event. Let's go to, you know, big parks and, and things like that. 
uh, and have them in areas where there are large residential areas nearby. And let's set up the sound system and let's just start saying our stuff so that they hear it from their houses and go, what's this all about? And start wandering over. And that, and that inevitably would happen at our, at our events whenever we were able to have it at a, at, a, at a location like that. We converted a lot of people to libertarianism who had not heard about it before. Some were conservative, some were progressive, some were politically unaffiliated. Um, and they were everything from you know suburban people to urban people, all different types of uh, um, uh, uh uh, neighborhood demographics, income demographics, racial demographics, and everything in between. It turns out that if you just present liberty as something that connects with everyday people, instead of as a, an ideological philosophy, if you, if you break it down as an idea that people should be free and then present what that actually looks like, it's a, it's a connecting thing. And uh, like I said, it was a very, very rewarding experience. It was incredibly challenging. Uh, I am still getting used to, you know, sleeping eight hours a, a night if I want to. Um, but it is, uh, it, it, it was definitely, uh, we, we did, we got a, a, did a lot of good work out there. That's awesome. And, and the next question is going to have, you know, three um, tough parts to it. But basically, okay, everybody kind of wants to know, you know, A, what did you think about the results? How mm -hmm. are you feeling about them? B, what did you guys think that you did? the best at, you know, and then see, obviously, because we have to learn as we go forward, mm -hmm. what could you have done better or what would you have done differently? So I'm not the least bit happy with the outcome in terms of the, the, the number of votes that we got. I mean, I, 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 I never, even though you run anything that you get involved when in, you, you have to try to run to win, we all kind of knew the likelihood of us winning was almost non-existent, but we hoped that we could get a certain percentage to be able to actually, you know, qualify, qualify to be on the debate stage. Uh, we were shut out by the press. So that didn't happen. We were hoping to get, you know, more votes than we had gotten before that didn't happen. So I, I'm not, I'm not happy with that. I do want to say this uh, to put some perspective in, because I've heard all the, you know, all the people who came out afterwards to explain why this wasn't as bad as, you know, as we thought it was. And it is true that, you know, in that for a incumbent election uh, where where one of the people running for president is the incumbent who is running for re-election, that that always historically has been a bad time for third parties um, and that we did the best that we've ever done uh, in, in, in that kind of scenario. Uh, it's the first time that the Libertarian Party has gotten third place in all 50 states. Uh, which means that you know we have solidified ourselves as the third largest party and have really separated from the rest of the pack there. Uh, it is true that we had a lot of uh, uh, something like two dozen wins across the country, including the first um, uh, state legislative victories, uh, state house victories in uh, what, 20 years, something like that. Uh, it's true that the number of members of the Libertarian Party increased by 30% to its highest number of paid members uh, in, in history. We have the highest number of, of Libertarians who have, or people who have registered as Libertarians in their state, uh, which is very powerful because people tend to vote how they're registered. Um, so that's, that's you know, a good, uh, good foreshadowing for the future. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And it is true that given all of the factors that it was an incumbent re-election year, that there, that that even more so than other incumbent re-election years, all of major media on both the left and right 
you know, presented this as a binary choice between Trump and Biden with no one else even being given any real attention. Uh, you know, even though uh, COVID-19 and all the lockdowns made it so that it was weighted even more heavily towards candidates who could spend hundreds of millions of dollars on, you know, blanket carpet bomb advertising. The fact that 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 even despite all of that, we still did as quote unquote well as we did. That's all true, and it's unacceptable. The fact that a party that has been around for fifty years is still comforting itself on how admirably we lost. The fact that we are completely reliant on factors that have nothing to do with our party have nothing to do with our message, have nothing to do with our campaigning, have nothing to do with anything about us. They're entirely based on things like, is an incumbent running for re-election? Are, you know, is it easy to be able to book events? Uh, you know, is the media giving you enough attention? It's all stuff that we have no real control over. And the fact that that is the difference between whether we get 1% or 3% is completely unacceptable which is why for the next over the next coming months and years my entire focus is going to be on growing this party into something that isn't reliant on outside factors to even be involved in the conversation because if we're ever going to win not just for president and vice president but for governor for congress for senate for state legislator for city races to win more uh, across the board we have to be bigger We have to have more members and more activists. We have to be more active in our communities. We have to be more involved in the cultural conversation. We have to take bold uh, stances on hot button issues that show us as the thought leaders. You know, we have to do all the work that needs to be done to grow this into a party that doesn't talk every four years about how well we lost. If you really think about it, we have to get out of this mindset. Um, so that's my thoughts on the on on you know the outcome. To your questions of what I think we did well, um, our bus tour and our, our our tours, I think were pitch perfect. We got around. I think the reason we did as well as we did, given the circumstances, is because we because we saw that national media was going to ignore us. We went in front of the people and got a lot of local media who was just desperate to cover something happening in their local area. So we sort of did a bypass around the crony corporate media by going straight to local media, which is still part of crony corporate media, but they also have to fill the airtime. So we were able to get in front of a lot of local media who would cover that there was a candidate. And and people would go, oh, wow, there's someone else running for president. There's someone else running for vice president. I better look into them. So we, we, we did well with that. And uh, another thing we did well was, unlike in previous, the last few previous presidential campaigns, we helped the, the grassroots down ballot candidates. We recognized that they were the ones who had the best shot of winning. And uh, we, we believe that a, a, a big part of why they did well uh, in their races compared to other years is because of the work that we did to, to, to is, is at least partially because of the work that we did to help them and to, to put those national resources into helping the down ballot candidates. So I think we did well with that. Uh, I also think that we had a, um, you know, a very libertarian platform. There was never a time where I had to, you know, explain why we had to compromise on our platform to appease to normies, which is has been, you know, uh, for those who are new to libertarian politics, this is not the normal. Usually we're putting up someone who agrees with us on 60, 70 percent of stuff. And then the rest of the time we're going, oh, well, you know, we don't agree with them on health care. We don't agree with them on guns. We don't agree with them on taxes or, or whatever. Um, this was a purely libertarian, uh, you know, a down the, you know, a, a, a um, 
highly, highly principled and orthodox libertarian platform derived uh, uh, policy uh, platform that we had for the campaign. What did we do wrong? Wow, there's a lot of stuff. So uh, the biggest thing, and this was something that I was kind of harping on in the in the background, uh, uh, in, in the behind the scenes is we needed to pick two or three things that were the hot button issues that people were talking about. And we needed to hammer away at those with our libertarian solutions to those issues. And all of that, with the exception of when the police brutality discussion would heat up after the George Floyd, uh, 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 George Floyd murder, and then conversations about, you know, the protesting and the rioting, for the most part, the conversation was about COVID-19, the pandemic itself, the lockdowns and the economic devastation from both the pandemic and the lockdowns and just the greater healthcare discussion that had been a big deal even before COVID-19 and was brought to the forefront even more so by having a pandemic going on. We had good answers to all of that stuff. And we had answers that neither the Republicans or Democrats could give because it would involve them admitting their guilt and their compl- their their complacency and complicity in in, in cre- making this problem worse, namely the fact that the federal government didn't allow people to test for COVID-19 for the first several weeks that the virus was here, which is why it spread out of control in the first place. And then they pivoted and tried to blame it on us for wanting to go and live our lives and impose these ridiculous uh, you know, lockdowns that lasted for weeks and months are still going on now, even though all of the, the, the experts like the World Health Organization said that long-term lockdowns don't work and cause massive uh, devastation that's far more harmful than the virus itself. Um, we had the right answers to these things. We have the right answers to these things. But unfortunately, we often were focused on saying we were going to end the wars and bring the troops home, which is, that's great. That's a good thing. We should want to do that. No one was talking about that. We needed to have that on our website. We needed to have that answer if we were asked, but no one was waking up and saying, man, I wish that our foreign policy was more like Switzerland's. They were worried about COVID-19. They were worried about the pandemic. They were worried about the lockdowns. They were worried about healthcare. They were worried about everyday issues that affect them and their family and their loved ones. And, and unfortunately, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the situation overseas, the, the, the wars and, and foreign policy were not in the forefront. We needed to have answers for everything, but we often were either talking about stuff that other people weren't talking about, or we were talking about everything. We were using this campaign as almost like an educational platform where we would just talk about, you know, each week we'd pick a different thing, which often was not what people were talking about. We are not the thought leaders right now. We have to go with what everyone's talking about right now. We're, we're too small to, you know, we're not Trump. We can't put out a tweet and have everyone be talking about what we're talking about. If we put out a tweet and it's not, it's not what everyone's talking about, a lot of people are going to go, that's weird. That's not what I'm talking about. We need to go into these conversations with our libertarian answer to it. If people want to talk about the pandemic, then I would be foolish to say, well, you know, I know you want to talk about the pandemic, but I'd like to explain to you why the Federal Reserve is stealing from your wealth. Like, they don't care about that in that moment. It's, I mean, we're three business owners on here, right? You're talking to a potential client when you're talking to a potential customer and they come in and go, listen, the reason I'm coming to you or the reason that I'm even listening to what you have to say is because I am worried about, you know, uh, profit or I'm worried about, you know, um, 
whatever it is, whatever thing that they're worried about. And you go, I, well, I know you're saying that, but here's what your real issue is. And frankly, I also, uh, I put this brochure together of a bunch of other things that we can do that you've lost them. So I think that that was a big mistake. Um, what else? Uh, that's the big one. I think that we needed to have realized very early on that we were not going to get national media attention um, and that we, we needed to much earlier on focus on the engaging local and regional media uh, and making bold proclamations in those markets, which would then filter up to national media, give them something to chew on, give them some, you know, quote unquote, controversy to chew on good controversy, controversy that is in our favor, where we're, where we're putting out bold positions that go against the, you know, what, what, what the general consensus is right now, but that we can explain it in a way that will pu pull people over to our side. That's what you have to do. Um, and just in general, that also speaks to, I mean, for the first two months of the campaign, we didn't have a website, we didn't have a logo, uh, we weren't able to hit the ground running because that work hadn't already been done. Um, and I think the biggest lesson that we learned there is in choosing the nominees, in choosing the, the nominee for president, in the future, we need to pick someone who already has a campaign team, who already has a full, full campaign staff, who has already raised, Larry Sharp says $100,000. I say at least it needs to be at least a quarter to half a million dollars, but has already raised a lot of money which demonstrates that they are able to put together a, a solid campaign team and get and raise money, um, you know, to be able to, to, to fund that campaign team. Um, and I need, I, I think that they need to also uh, demonstrate that they are able to do this as a 24 seven thing during the course of the campaign. Um, yeah. And so I think th those were the biggest takeaways from that. Uh, there were some, and, and I, I know at least a few people that are watching this are saying, yeah, but what about this tweet or what about that yeah. post or what about this comment? And there, there's certainly, and, and we can even talk about this. I, I, I will, I will, uh, lay down my sword on, on a couple of, of things that I've said and done, but ultimately none of that matters as much as the fact that there needed to be more organization done initially to hit the ground running because the vast majority of people that were thinking of voting, uh, for us and even the people that voted for us don't know about the anti-racism tweet. They don't right. know about the, uh, you know, uh, about uh, the whatever thing that some people are, you know, are, are upset about. They don't, they don't know about any of that. And, and, and even more people didn't know anything about us and, and went into the voting booth having no idea who we even were um, and, and, and didn't vote for us because of that. So there were much bigger issues than that. Um, so that's what I would say were my takeaways from that. No, that's great. And and Kevin and I have talked a lot about the down ballot races, um, mostly about the one on one races we were able to finagle in and do yep. really well at. But the one thing that we did highlight was Donald Rainwater's race in Indiana. Yes. And what we decided there between the two of us, you know, all two of us, um, is that the key on how he did so good was he picked an answer to a question that everybody yep. wanted. He was bold on it, and he was very different than the Republican and the Democrat. Yes. And he got a lot of attention and a lot of money for it. And that's basically what you're saying. And, and you know, he, he didn't do as good as we all had hoped, but he was still mid-teens, you know, in a three-way race. In a in a very competitive gubernatorial race during a presidential incumbent election, and Correct. and in 
if in those same factors, but during a midterm year, I don't think people realize how big of a deal it is. The number of people that show up and vote straight ticket because they either want the, the incumbent to get reelected or want the incumbent to lose. And they just vote straight ticket because they haven't even been following the other stuff in yeah. Another scenario where it hadn't been, like if the race had been in 2022 or in 2018, Donald, well, 2018, there wasn't the pandemic and the, and the, the mask mandate yeah. lockdowns, which is, what, which is what he seized upon, but he could have seized upon something else. In 2022, if this were a similar thing, he could have won or come yeah. in second um, in, a three -way, in a highly funded three-way race. So no, it, it, but let's look at what Don, Donald Rainwater did. He picked what people were upset and frustrated about. Yep. And he hammered away about it. And if he was asked questions on other stuff, he would answer them. He had good answers for the stuff about property taxes, about education, about the, uh, you know, the, the, the job situation there. I was there at the, the, the watch party for the first debate. And, and I watched him very, very closely. He had answers for everything. But his main issue was government should not be powerful enough to tell you whether or not you're essential and ruin your life in order to protect you from a virus that has a very high survivability rate, but, and, and subject you to things like malnourishment and depression and untreated other diseases because they've shut down the hospitals to anything but COVID that have a much higher rate than COVID that in that economic devastation that lasts and, and, and permeates for generations. All of these things are far more damaging than the actual virus itself. That, and, and that again, it was the government's inaction and refusal to allow healthcare workers to do their job that allowed it to spread out of control in the first place. That is was his core message. He hammered away at it and he connected with a lot of people. And, you know, I mean, frankly, if the presidential ticket had gotten 12%, that would have been one of the biggest news items of the election. So, you know, people want to poo-poo the fact that he got 12%. That was fantastic. And, you know, uh, uh, Ricky Harrington getting uh, 30, uh, 30, what's 4% in, in, in the election against, uh, uh, against Tom Cotton in Arkansas. These are libertarians that have gotten exponentially more votes in their states than any other libertarian before them. And we need to look at the blueprint uh, for how these things are happening, not to mention all the, the people that won their local and, 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 and statewide races. Um, and that's actually why I started a series called Culture of Winning, where I uh, interview libertarians who got elected to talk about how they got elected. What did they do? What didn't they do? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? So we can work on what is that blueprint for winning elections. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Where can people find that, Spike? Uh, so on my social media, if you're following Spike Cohen on Facebook, on Twitter, or on YouTube, we are doing that on uh, Mondays and Thursdays uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we do them live. Uh, because we we want to get some interaction from you know uh, from commenters you know any questions they have and stuff like that and uh, and it's on uh, my Facebook it, it simulcasts to my uh, Facebook my Twitter and my YouTube so follow all three of them just in case you miss one of them <laughs> and um and absolutely love um, hearing you after the election talk about what you're going to do for the next four years and obviously you touched on it here today really, really excited about that. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, I've been, I, and I, I want to, because I know some people I get at, anytime I post or tweet or, or put a video out, I get inevitably asked, are you running in 2024? <laughs> and, and people think I'm being coy with my answer, but I'm not. First of all, I have no idea. I, I have not made a decision for 2024. Second of all, 
it doesn't matter if I won in 2024, if I'm going to get 1% or 3% or 2% or whatever, and it's going to be largely reliant on factors that have nothing to do with me or the campaign or the party or anything else. And for that matter, it doesn't matter who runs. If the best we can hope for is to get four or 5%, the, the unattainable forbidden goal of 5%, we have to grow this party into being a movement that can actually make it on the debate stage, even if they're actively ignoring us because we just have so much attention and so much support that they can't ignore us. And we have to do the work at the grassroots level to grow this party into a movement where the things that we talk about and fantasize about, people being set free from cages, wars ending and troops coming home, uh, people getting the care that they need because we've gotten the bureaucracy out of healthcare and it's become affordable and, and attainable again, and Ending cronyism by getting rid of all of these absurd regulations that destroy small businesses, ending these ridiculous lockdowns and mandates and showing the American people that it was the government's fault in the first place that this virus spread out of control. All the things we want to do, getting people out of cages for victimless crimes, everything that we want to do is not going to happen until we get elected. And even before that, until we get our ideas in the cultural conversation. So what am I going to do in 2024 is largely irrelevant. It's what am I going to do this month, next month, next year to work and grow the party. And I just encourage everyone to stay tuned because that's exactly what we're going to do. We just saw the consequences of, no, of, of very few, only one libertarian being at the table. And it's called the Moore Act. In my mind, the Moore Act, which is which would decriminalize and then and then regulate and tax marijuana, is far better than we have now. In the same way that ending alcohol prohibition and regulating and tax it was far better than continuing prohibition, it is much better than putting people in cages. It allows people to be able to you know uh, get uh, be able to use marijuana and still own a weapon legally and, and, and still vote and not, you know, still not be sent to jail or being stuck with a felony record. There are many good things out of it. But if you look at the bill, it's terrible. It's a bunch of regulations. It's a freaking excise tax. It's all sorts of terrible things. And the reason that happened is because there's one libertarian in Congress and because there's not enough libertarians to hold any sway, he wasn't even involved in the negotiation process. We are doomed to continue to sit on the sidelines and debate about whether we like stuff or not with most people having no idea whether we're even having a debate to begin with or even who we are. We are doomed to be continue to be irrelevant until we make ourselves large enough by bringing people in at the grassroots level so that we can't be ignored anymore, so that our ideas are getting the attention that they deserve, so that we can change minds because our ideas are better, so that we can get elected and actually achieve the goals that we want. So it's great for us to be principled. It's great for us to, to, to say the truth that no one else is, is in a position to say, that everyone else is too scared to say. We have to grow so that people can actually hear it. If I'm shouting in a room that no one can hear me in, then it, I, all I've done is hurt my, my larynx. But if I'm out there with a bullhorn that is large enough to be able to reach enough people for us to be able to actually contest this conversation in these elections, then we can actually win. And that's what, that's what my singular focus is going to be on over the next following months and years. And I hope that you all join me. Yeah, and I think um, people hear me talk a lot about <clears throat> bold libertarianism versus incrementalism, um, and I I favor the bold approach. And I think you and Joe did a great job, you know, sticking to core principles and and hitting them hard. And on this particular issue, right, the bold approach would be to propose something that didn't have all the taxes in it. 
But once there's something out there and it's a yes or a no vote, I would disagree with any any libertarian who wants to say no to the Morris Act because it accomplishes 80% of what we're trying to get to. Uh, and I also think that the fact that only five Republicans voted for it opens up an enormous opportunity for us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it fails in the Senate now. A- we can absolutely. Go after it. Yeah. Absolutely. And here, yeah, and it's going to, fa- and it's more than likely going to fail in the Senate. But here, here is the thing it's a bad bill. I will go as far as saying it's a bad bill. Like, if libertarians were the ones who had introduced it, I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? We have no seat at the table. This yeah. is far better than the status quo. If you're in a cage right now on a, on a, on a, on a weed charge and you're hearing that this could, you know, that, that this passing, uh, could get you set free and have your felony record expunged. Yeah, that's way better than than having your felony record stay on and you still stay in jail. And yeah, the taxes and regulations suck. And yeah, there will be, be people that go to jail because of the taxes and regulations, but far fewer than an outright ban. Um, I don't know how much time allows, but I, I want to address... Uh, probably the biggest single failing I had in my, in the campaign, in my part of the campaign that was early on. Uh, and it was, a it was, it was really, it was a, it was a failure of leadership on, on my part, but I, I also, you know, I want to respect your time. No, we'll, we'll go as long as you're willing. No, no, we'll go as long as you want, bud. Okay. So my biggest failure, I believe, and people may disagree with me. My biggest failure that I had was that early on, on my social media, uh, I did. I, I I had some amazing people in place for my social media, um, and because I had amazing people in place, and because I was so busy with all this other campaigning stuff I was doing, I largely, I most of the content that was on my social media was either written by me or written by me and someone else on my team in collaboration, working together to put it together. Every once in a while, they would write something and tried their best to make it sound like something I would say. Uh, and, and so I'd say maybe, you know, uh, 60% of the stuff that was on my social media was stuff I wrote. Another, let's say 30% was stuff that I wrote in, in uh, co- co- collaboration with someone else. And then another 10% was stuff that was written on my behalf. And for the most part, that was fine. What I should have done early on is said, listen, anything that goes out that isn't just a, hey, come help the, you know, come, come to my event or just, you know, like a, a generic standard issue thing. Anything that is me taking a position on something, I need to look at it first before it goes out. And for the most part, uh, there were only a couple times that anything went out uh, that, that I would not have written. But for the most part, it wasn't that big of a deal. The one glaring exception to that, and there were, there were probably a couple others that I that I would have that I would have said absolutely not, but they weren't as big of a deal. The one glaring one was the so-called trans genocide post. Um, this was put together by uh, someone on the social media team and 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 posted on my social media. It just so happened to happen at a time that I was literally in the woods at this anarchist camping thing uh, where I was campaigning there, and uh, and then immediately was at was at some other event. So I didn't even look at my phone for nearly 24 hours, and and by the time I saw it, it had already been up for the better part of of a day. Uh, but basically, 
it, it posited, it, it claimed that there was a genocide against trans people that was happening as a result of, uh, of the rhetoric and policies against the LGBTQ community that was coming from Donald Trump and that Donald Trump was essentially responsible for the murder of trans people. Now, the reason that they claimed that there was, that this post claimed that there was a um, that there was a genocide against trans people was based on an article that was written in an LGBTQ um, uh, uh, periodical or website or whatever. Um, and it, what it did was it, it looked at statistics of the number of trans people that had been murdered over the past, I, I guess, four years, five years, whatever. And it showed a marked increase, I think 60 something percent or whatever increase uh, of, of trans people being murdered. The problem was the methodology was bad. First of all, more every year, more and more police departments correctly gender the, the person being killed. So in the past, like if you went five years ago, way more police departments would just go by what was on the birth certificate or what was on the, the, the driver's license, which, which often was just what was on the birth certificate. So if someone was trans, it wasn't even mentioned. So it's uh, some of it is just the fact that it's being more correctly reported the number of trans people that are that are being murdered. Second of all, there's been an uptick in the number of people being murdered of all races, creeds, colors, and 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 genders and and sexual uh, uh, identities and so forth uh, across the board. So some of it is accounted for by that. And then finally, there wasn't a deep dive into the data to show if the person was being murdered because they were trans or not. You know, you could just as easily say, well, there's been an, an uptick in the number of white people that have been killed. Therefore, there's a genocide against white people using that same using that same data set. And because it was based on bad methodology, it came to a breathless conclusion that it was, you know, that Donald Trump was um, was, you know, causing a, a trans genocide. I am as LGBTQ friendly a, a politician as you will meet. I don't let bad data put, lead me to bad conclusions. And if I had, if I had had the, if I had put the controls in place of saying that th anything that gets posted needs to be run by me first, that would have been run by me. I would have looked at it. I would have explained why the data was bad on it and why we're not going to post it because I didn't do that. That post went out. And to this day, when you put this out, when you put this episode out without fail, there will be people who will comment and tweet, oh, ask them about transgenocide, ask them about transgenocide. A lot of people got really, really turned off by that. Now, some of them were looking for a reason to get turned off, but some of them were just not happy with the fact that I put out in my name, and they have no way of knowing any differently, that uh, that. Uh, you know, I, I that I, I I looked at a very bad data set and came to a very breathless and hyperbolic conclusion as a result of that, yeah. and that was a perfect example. And and the reason why I waited until after the election to say that it was not me who posted it, that that and that it was a, a failure on on my part to to put the controls in place was I did not want it to look like I was throwing people under the bus that it was someone else's fault because at the end of the day it was not someone else's fault. Right. It was my fault. The person who wrote that had written many, many other things that pitch perfect was, was what I would say about the given situation. And they made one thing that was not uh, my voice 
and, and was not something I would have come to the, to that conclusion on because I did not put the, 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 the control, the, the, that control in place saying, listen, anything that's going out in my name, I need to sign off on, especially if it's me taking a, a, a take or, or a position on a, on a important subject. Um, it was that, you know, and, and that will, there's probably people 10 years from now that'll still be the transgenocide. And, and it's, it was a failure on my part. That was, I believe the single biggest failure that I, that I had, because it also fed into people who wanted to say that I was pandering to the left, even though if they looked down into what I was doing, you know, yes, I went to a black lives matter rally. It was hosted by black lives matter, Maj Ture's black guns matter, uh, the Boog Boys and the Black Panthers, and I went there to talk about gun rights. But that, coupled with the trans genocide post, led people to a lot of other conclusions as a result of it. And that is directly my fault for not putting those those controls in place. Yeah, and I think so. First of all, it's awesome to hear a politician talk about um, a failing because that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Uh, second of yeah. all, I'll say um, the only thing that bothered me about it was the hyperbolic nature. Uh, yeah. As an Armenian, I had about a million friends and family killed in the actual genocide. You know exactly. I mean? Yes, exactly. Because it, that's another thing. Even if there had been a 60% increase of the murder of trans people over the last four or five years, because and even if we were able to demonstrate that it was because they were trans, as horrible as that is, and as much of a, as a, of a crisis as that would need to be, that we would need to address, it is not a genocide. So yes, anyway, go ahead, sorry. But yeah, and then the second part I wanna to touch on is that I did touch on this earlier uh, on a podcast I visited and, um, and basically said, you know, there were two different ways of going about Black Lives Matter. And I thought that the way that you went about it was much more interesting in that you talked about um, in the videos I saw, I believe what I was hearing was talking about the history of gun laws being against black people mm -hmm. um, and the criminal justice system being against black people and offering um, your take on solutions in that realm rather than talking about the the leftist Marxist portion of Black Lives Matter. We don't need to get deep into that issue, but yeah, of course. my point with it is, is there's, there's multiple ways of going about um, supporting aspects of that movement and i was impressed with the way that you did it um well, and i was you. and i was separating that from the way that some other folks in the movement did it over the summer um and i've taken a lot of heat because i supported aspects of the movement um not as eloquently as you did um and my so yeah, my, I think you did a good job with that. Well, well, thank you. My goal was to go into the largest conversation that was happening in that moment, which was largely be based on what could easily be made into anti-authoritarian, libertarian talking points and right. was largely being shuttled into uh, or being being uh, couched into a, a racial conversation that was being exploited by a combination of extreme leftists and Democrat operatives and trying to take, instead of, you know, uh, uh, standing on the sidelines and, you know, uh, shaking my head in disapproval of how their conversation is going, going there and trying to inject 
libertarian ideas into that conversation. And I would say that considering we got uh, two Black Lives Matter endorsements, we got and, and not only got their endorsements, but got them to talk more libertarian because we I went there to what what started as a racial discussion and moved it into a power discussion that the problem wasn't that the racism was the motive behind a lot of it, but that that wasn't the problem. The problem was that the racists had the power to even do that thing in the first place. And that if yeah. you get rid of that power structure and get rid of their ability to be, you know, to, to use their racism in an institutional way, that now they're just jerks who don't like you and yeah. screw them because you aren't relying on them. You aren't beholden to them. They can't control you, but that we're in a reality where you are relying on them. You are beholden to them. They do control you. And so, you know, I would go into those conversations and say, listen, do you know why this rally isn't being tear gassed right now? It's because there are boob boys over there with guns. It's because there's Black Panthers here with guns because cops don't bring tear gas to a gunfight. Right. And it was little things like that that no one else was saying that would get people to listen to me over the cacophony of other people that were there to say, yeah, Black Lives Matter. Let's vote for Kamala Harris, who's locked more black people up than any other person alive. You know, the alternative in my mind would have been to just stand on the sidelines and not talk to them, not engage them. Had, did, were there times when I when I could have done something differently or better? I'm, I'm sure there were. I'm sure there's there are many things that I, 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 I can learn from in, in doing that. But overall, my goal was to go into those conversations and have a libertarian interjection to that conversation. And I would say that for the most part, I was largely uh, successful in being able to do that. I'm one person. Uh, you know, and, and um, the, uh, I, 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 you know, there were other things that happened with the campaign that I didn't think were the best idea. I don't think quoting Angela Davis in a tweet was the best way of, uh, of, uh, you know, of, of, of dealing with the, the, the question about racism. Uh, I, I did my best to, uh, to cycle it back, to spin it to, you know, how libertarianism is inherently anti-racist because it takes power from, from uh from racist people and just makes them jerks or whatever but i uh or, or makes them into where they're just jerks that can't hurt people but was it helpful to 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 you know quote a, a communist and 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 tell people that they have to be actively anti-racist without telling them what that even meant i wouldn't have done it um but you know so i mean there's certainly mistakes that were made and 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 things that can be learned from but the idea that we should be ignoring one of the largest political movements uh happening right now uh, when they are often complaining about things that we've been complaining about for decades and we have actual solutions for, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think a good idea is to go and engage with them on our terms. I agree. Well, I, think that, that, I think that that tweet, you know, that was the one that really uh, I saw a lot of people throw down over and I got involved in it too. But the way that I took that tweet, which of course, you know, I'm a left libertarian, so I'm basically a communist, but um, <laughs> I didn't think it as, as offensive. And all the people that I saw that were getting upset about it, I always felt like they were looking for any excuse to not, to not support the libertarian candidate. And to oh, there's some of Trump. that too. Yeah, absolutely. There was some of that as well. There was some of that as well. But I, here, here is what I will say on as hot button of a subject as race relations are, there should be nothing left to interpretation. 
that tweet left a lot of interpretation. And I did my best to fill in that interpretation and say, well, you know, Ron Paul said that it's impossible to be a, a racist when you're a libertarian because, you know, uh, racism is just another ugly form of collectivism and libertarians are anti-collectivists. And, you know, in order to be a uh, libertarian, that, that means that we're actively anti it, 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 There, There was a way to have that conversation without creating and I know that tweets can only be, you know, what is a two uh, hundred and whatever characters at a time or whatever. But there was a way to do that that didn't leave so much interpretation. And yeah, Kevin, of course, like I said before, there there are absolutely people, like you said, that they they're just looking for the thing. I clear my throat wrong, and they go, ah, see, look, he clears his throat wrong. But there were a lot of people that I knew who were principal libertarians who that and a couple other things were enough for them to at least not be as full-throated and excited about their support, if nothing else. Um, And and it's important that when you have conversations about hot-button controversial stuff, you leave nothing to interpretation. You put it all out there in a way that, uh, that, you know, connects with the concerns of the people that are involved and also immediately brings it to the discussion of how your solutions would fix it. That tweet didn't do that. So at best, it was not harmful. And at worst, it was harmful. But it, 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 there was nothing in that that made people inspired. It wasn't a call to action. There was nothing in there. Uh, be actively anti-racist. People that are actively anti-racist said, okay, I am. And people who weren't sure what that meant said, what does that mean? And people who knew the, 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 uh, uh, the communist undertones behind what Angela Davis said when she said actively anti-racist, what anti-racism work means uh, uh, in the, in the, in, 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 you know, in, in, in Marxism took offense to it. So there was just a better way to do it. Um, but, you know, again, these are all things that you learn in real time. Uh, it, you know, you remember Gary Johnson in his first race, he got less than 1%. The second one, he got 3.25. So I think there is that, that level of learning things as you go. But uh, I will say on my side, because I, I had little to nothing to do with Joe's messaging or social media or any of that. On my side, my biggest failure uh, was not right at the beginning saying, hey, listen, you guys are amazing. Everything you're putting out has been fantastic. I just need to make sure that there's a filter that, you know, that everything I at least have a chance to look at for a couple minutes before it gets posted or tweeted, um, just to make sure that nothing's being put out. That isn't what I would say. Um, and that was my failure. And I, 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 I fall on that sword. And if you have time for one more question about the election, I think. Absolutely. Thing, um, that I, that I, uh, got asked earlier today. And I, I think it's interesting is, the difference in the amount of money that was raised in 16 versus 20. And I think part of what we just talked about contributed to it because the people that were, were a little turned off, you know, are less likely to give 300 bucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I think it was 60 or 70% less dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, in your mind, was that due, you know, to not having the two governors? Was that due to just a couple of large donor networks? Was that due to, um, what? So I think that the, my experience with talking to the bigger donors, talking to people who have talked to the bigger donors, I think that I would say, and I'm very rough figures here, but I'd say at least half of the 
of the lack of you know the 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 less money at least half of the reason for less of the money was the factors we had no control over we weren't getting that major media attention that uh bill and gary got um you know uh the 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 one redeemable thing about bill weld was he called in a lot of his chips with beltway media he then used it to promote Hillary, but he, but, but he, he did use that. And so at least there were people who knew there were more people who knew that the libertarians were even running someone. Um, and I think that that was helpful, helpful for fundraising. He also pulled a lot of his strings with, you know, big name donors and stuff like that. But more importantly, because the media was more, uh, uh, agreeable to even showing th- a third party person in the first place in 2016 than they were in 2020. That certainly was it as well. Uh, there's also the fact that during the pandemic, uh, a lot of people were just giving less across the board. Every- everyone was, was kind of getting less money uh, across the board. So there was that as well. The other half was the fact that a lot of people who want to put money behind winning horses saw that for two months, we didn't have a website. We didn't have a logo. We didn't have a slogan. We looked like we were just discovering that we had won. Um, I do not want to appear to be throwing anyone under the bus um, because there we had an incredible staff and I think an amazing campaign team. Uh, We had amazing activists, grassroots activists across the country who often were working for free. We didn't have a lot of paid staff. The people that were doing for free full-time labor to try to help this campaign in every way that they possibly could. So this is definitely not a slight to the staff or to the activists or to, to the team or anything like that. Moving forward, our presidential nominee needs to already have a team in place a paid team in place. They need to have already raised six figures. You know, like I said, Larry Sharp says a hundred grand. I say half a million, but okay, let's say a hundred grand. They need to have raised big money already. They need to be showing that they already have things in place like a website and branding and all the stuff that they can really just fit whoever the VP candidate is and run with it. Um, They need to have all that in place and then they need to be able to um, to say that they will work full-time on this, that they do not have a job they have to go back to at some point uh, during the time that they're running. And I think that those are major, major factors that need to be factored in moving forward. Uh, and anyone who, and, and then all the other X factor stuff, they need to be dynamic. They need to be able to spread the message. They need to be able to connect with everyday people. They need to all, you know, all that stuff, that, that stuff matters too. I'm just talking about foundational stuff before we even look at all that other stuff. We have to see, do they already have a campaign team that they're running during the nomination contest? Do they already, are, have they already demonstrated an ability to be able to uh, raise funds and are they, are they, is this going to be a full-time thing for them all the way through to election day? Uh, and then I guess one last thing is, are they already running a, a public facing campaign with the idea that, you know, they're already trying to bring, bring people into the movement uh, even before they get the nomination. And I think moving forward, if we make sure that those things are important, then we will make sure that, that, you know, our nominees are, uh, are, are going to be able to maximize so that, within hours and days of getting the nomination, the website's up, the, the, the merchandise is ready. The, the merchandise took, we were, we were just starting to get merchandise at the convention, which was almost two months after we got the nomination. Yeah. These are things that major donors looked at and went, mm, maybe next time. 
And, and, and so that, that's a big lesson. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I don't know if you know, um, Jake Porter, who is running the Hornburger campaign uh, mm-hmm. and I was on that campaign as well. Um, and so, and so obviously I was a Hornburger guy. I, I endorsed, you know, Joe and, and you awfully quickly. Um, but that was something that we had focused on, you know, and, and had gotten ready. And, and I think that that is something that we need to take these key learnings and let candidates know, you know, we had 16 people in some of these debates, um, 14 of which, you know, weren't ready with all the stuff that you were just talking about and 16 of which weren't ready with the money. You know what I mean? So um, the other thing Jake and I had talked about in the past is what happens in between presidential can yes contact, you know what I yes mean? had gary johnson and and you know god forbid bill well you know, <laughs> had, had these guys actually been promoting liberty and libertarian ideas and down ballot liberty candidates yep. for yep. four yep. years you know then we may have actually started out with three million votes and you guys could have won or lost the vote uh, case- lost them all in between case in point that is what Gary and Jim Gray did after 2012. Yes. Especially Jim Gray, but Gary as well. They did go to the uh, the conventions. They did do the, the 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 helping with down ballot. They did do that stuff. And and so whatever they were, because the, they were the first ones to get uh, over a million votes uh, for the presidential ticket. The only other person to get a million votes at that point was John Mons for whatever race he ran in, in Georgia uh, in, I think, 2014 or 2010 or whatever. No, it, w- it would have been 2020, 2010. So, but they took that record high number um, and, and, and ran with it. In 2016, Gary and Bill went away. Yeah. Like went away, went away. And uh, to the point where like I was in Albuquerque. There was no Gary Johnson. There was, I I was in, I was literally in New Mexico and uh, you know, they like went away, like by everybody. And, uh, and so, and we, and, and I think that that also played a factor. I think if, if Gary had been uh, uh, you know, more actively involved and I'm not even saying during our campaign, I'm saying, from 2016 to 2019, uh, that would have been helpful as well. Um, so, and, and, and incidentally, and I just want to say, this isn't, this also isn't about throwing Joe under the table. I think Joe did as well as she could as well. I, I we need to learn from what happened and yep. take the lessons and not take it personally. I don't take it personally that there were failures that I had. I don't take it personally that there are are things that I could have done better. The only way that I or or you know whomever else is running in the future can learn from it is to look soberly and and look honestly and 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 taking our feelings out of it, what was done right, what was done wrong, what wasn't done that should have been done and then move forward from there and that's you know that's what we have to do because I, we can very quickly go from a party that got 1.2% to going to a party that wins. But it takes doing the work, creating the blueprint, and doing hard work every day to be able to, to grow it into something that actually can contest elections. We can't keep with the status quo. Yep. We, ha- we have to do the next thing. I believe that our era of failing admirably has come to an end, needs to come to an end. 
And uh, I am already engaging with, uh, with all these new activists that we brought in uh, and all these new excited new libertarians to help shepherd them along to being activists, to being candidates, to, to being the people that are going to do the groundwork for whoever we want we run in 2024. And that's, that's what we have to do. There's, there is no magic bullet that the media is not going to magically give us attention uh, to help us win. They want us to lose. They don't even want people to know we exist. We have to do the hard work. We have to work harder than the other parties to get less, less outcome. We have to work hard. Yep. And I, and I think the, the most important thing that you said today, in my opinion, is that 1.8 million votes was not good enough. And I think, I think that we know that, and you're right, we need to learn from our mistakes and we need to come up with that blueprint and help each other. And, and it's my belief that we're going to have four or five real strong candidates in 2024 that are going to announce earlier, start raising funds earlier, mm-hmm. you know, get core teams earlier, um, get delegates lined up earlier, yep. and that we're not going to have 16 you know, uh, no-names basically debating um, and 14 of which are, are not going to have a chance at being successful if they win. I, I don't believe we're going to be in that same spot in 2024 and shame on us if we are. I hope that we are in a completely different position by 2024, where we are coming off of the the the, the first midterm congressional victories we've ever had uh, and, and are looking at how do we replicate that for 2024. So I, I, I agree. Uh, and again, this is not about my personal political ambitions. If, if I were doing this for personal political ambitions, I wouldn't be doing it in the, in a third party. I'd be joining the Republicrats and, and, you know, using the cheat codes to work my way up the political ladder. I'm in this for the long haul to grow this into a movement that can actually contend and win elections. And I want the best candidates who have the best funding and the best ability and the best infrastructure around them to do that. And I want a much larger movement of libertarians who have heard our ideas on a much wider scale and who are much more heavily uh, able to uh, inject our ideas into the greater cultural conversation. And, and that takes doing the hard work. And I, like I said, I am honored uh, to be working with folks like, uh, like you, Todd, and, and Kevin, and others around the country to do just that, to grow this into something that accomplishes the goals that we want. Get people out of cages. End these wars. Bring people home. Get government out of our lives so that we can thrive. Get rid of these stupid regulations that have created this system of cronyism that you know has a small handful of powerful people calling all the shots and buying off politicians. End all of this nonsense by putting our ideas in place by decentralizing things, by putting the power back in the hands of the people that it was stolen from. And that's ultimately what we have to do. And it's, it's, it's the hard work that we have to do. And I, I'm excited to do it. And I'm honored to work with folks like you to do it. That's awesome. Well, I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. Kevin, what do you got? I don't have anything. I'm just, I'm so honored to have you on the show. I'm so honored to call you a friend. I think you're doing great things, Spike. I think that your vision for the party and everything is spot on. And I just can't wait to see what we can all do together. That's awesome. Spike, man. Well, I appreciate uh, it. Thank you guys. And Spike, if you want to just, um, I'm sure most people know where to find you, but if you just want to give all your plugs just so people can find you and then Kevin, I'll drop them in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. So my social media is Spike Cohen. It's easy. If you look for Spike Cohen on Facebook, if you look for Spike Cohen on Twitter, if you look for Spike Cohen on Instagram, if you look for Spike Cohen on YouTube, uh, I'm on TikTok for the kids. Uh, if you look for Spike Cohen, you'll find me there. And um, I, if you if you want to find out more about Muddy Waters Media and the shows that I do there, 
just as easy. It's Muddy Waters Media on everything, uh, on on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and, and Twitter and uh, Parlor and uh, MeWe and all that stuff as well. Muddied Waters, Muddied Waters Media. Um, my new website is coming out soon, spikecohen.com. Uh, it's not up yet, uh, but it will be up soon. And that will just be sort of a, a clearing house of all my different stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty easy to find. Spike Cohen, S-P-I-K-E-C-O-H-E-N on all of your favorite uh, social media venues. And thank you guys for this uh, opportunity to talk with you and your audience. I appreciate it, guys. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And, and we are going to make you come on again at some point in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much, Spike. Thanks again.